Section thirty of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume two by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. On Saturday, April the third, the day after my arrival in London this year, I went to his house late in the evening and sat with Mrs. Williams till he came home. I found in the London Chronicle Dr. Goldsmith's apology to the public for beating Evans, a bookseller on account of a paragraph in a newspaper published by him which goldsmith thought impertinent to him and to a lady of his acquaintance footnote it was anything but an apology unless apology is used in its old meaning of defence nine days after she stoops to conquer was brought out a vile libel written it is believed by kenrick was published by evans in the london packet the libeller dragged in one of the Miss Hornecks, the Jessamy bride of Goldsmith's verse. Goldsmith, believing Evans had written the libel, struck him with his cane. The blow was returned, for Evans was a strong man. He indicted Goldsmith for the assault, but consented to a compromise on his paying fifty pounds to a Welsh charity. The papers abused the poet, and steadily turned aside from the real point in issue. At last he stated it himself in an address to the public in the daily advertiser of March the 31st. Forster's Goldsmith The libel is given in Goldsmith's miscellaneous works. End of footnote. The apology was written so much in Dr. Johnson's manner that both Mrs. Williams and I supposed it to be his, but when he came home he soon undeceived us when he said to Mrs. Williams, well dr goldsmith's manifesto has gotten to your paper footnote your paper i suppose because the chronicle was taken in bolt court End of footnote. i asked him if dr goldsmith had written it with an air that made him see i suspected it was his though subscribed by goldsmith johnson sir dr goldsmith would no more have asked me to write such a thing as that for him than he would have asked me to feed him with a spoon, or to do anything else that denoted his imbecility. I as much believe that he wrote it as if I had seen him do it. Sir, had he shown it to any one friend, he would not have been allowed to publish it. He has indeed done it very well, but it is a foolish thing well done. I suppose he had been so much elated with the success of his new comedy that he thought everything that concerned him must be of importance to the public. Boswell. I fancy, sir, this is the first time that he has been engaged in such an adventure. Johnson. Why, sir, I believe it is the first time he has beat. He may have been beaten before. This, sir, is a new plume to him. Footnote. See Forster's Goldsmith, Volume 1, page 265, for a possible explanation of this sarcasm. End of footnote. I mentioned Sir John Dalrymple's Memoirs of Great Britain and Ireland, and his discoveries to the prejudice of Lord Russell and Algernon Sidney. Johnson. By sir, everybody who had just notions of government thought them rascals before. It is well that all mankind now see them to be rascals. 
Boswell. But, sir, may not those discoveries be true without their being rascals? Johnson. Consider, sir, would any of them have been willing to have had it known that they intrigued with France? Depend upon it, sir. He who does what he is afraid should be known has something rotten about him. This Dalrymple seems to be an honest fellow, for he tells equally what makes against both sides. Footnote. Horace Walpole is violent against Dalrymple and the King. What must, he said, be the designs of this reign, when George the Third encourages a Jacobite wretch to hunt in France for materials for blackening the heroes who withstood the enemies of Protestantism and liberty? Journal of the Reign of George the Third, end of footnote. But nothing can be poorer than his mode of writing. It is the mere bouncing of a schoolboy. Great he, but greater she, and such stuff. Footnote. Mr. Hallam pointed out to Mr. Croker that Johnson was speaking of Dalrymple's description of the parting of Lord and Lady Russell. With the deep and noble silence and a long and fixed look in which respect and affection unmingled with passion were expressed lord and lady russell parted for ever he great in this last act of his life but she greater dalrymple's memoirs see post april thirtieth seventeen seventy three for the foppery of dalrymple and boswell's hebrides near the end for johnson's imitation of dalrymple's style End footnote. I could not agree with him in this criticism, for though Sir John Dalrymple's style is not regularly formed in any respect, and one cannot help smiling sometimes at his affected grandiloquence, there is in his writing a pointed vivacity and much of a gentlemanly spirit. At Mr. Thrale's in the evening he repeated his usual paradoxical declamation against action in public speaking. Action can have no effect upon reasonable minds. It may augment noise, but it never can enforce argument. If you speak to a dog, you use action. You hold up your hand thus, because he is a brute and in proportion as men are removed from brutes, action will have less influence upon them. Mrs. Thrale What then, sir, becomes of Demosthenes saying, action, action, action? Johnson Demosthenes, madam, spoke to an assembly of brutes, to a barbarous people. I thought it extraordinary that he should deny the power of rhetorical action upon human nature when it is proved by innumerable facts in all stages of society. Reasonable beings are not solely reasonable. They have fancies which may be pleased, passions which may be roused. Lord Chesterfield being mentioned, Johnson remarked that almost all of that celebrated nobleman's witty sayings were puns. Footnote. Horace Walpole says, It was not Chesterfield's fault if he had not wit. 
nothing exceeded his efforts in that point and though they were far from producing the wit they at least amply yielded the applause he aimed at memoirs of the reign of george the second in a footnote he however allowed the merit of good wit to his lordship's saying of lord tyrawley and himself when both were very old and infirm tyrawley and i have been dead these two years but we don't choose to have it known footnote. a curious account of tyrawley is given in walpole's reign of george the second he had been ambassador at lisbon and he even affected not to know where the house of commons was walpole says letters that pope has mentioned his and another ambassador seraglio's in one of his imitations of horace he refers to the lines in the imitations that i one book six line one twenty go live with chartres in each vice abdu k blank l's lewd cargo or tie blank wise crew kinul and tyrawley says walpole are meant End of footnote. he talked with approbation of an intended edition of the spectator with notes two volumes of which had been prepared by a gentleman eminent in the literary world and the materials which he had collected for the remainder had been transferred to another hand footnote according to chalmers who himself had performed this task dr percy was the first of these gentlemen and dr john calder the second croker End of footnote. he observed that all works which describe manners require notes in sixty or seventy years or less and told us he had communicated all he knew that could throw light upon the spectator he said addison had made his sir andrew freeport a true whig arguing against giving charity to beggars and throwing out other such ungracious sentiments but that he had thought better and made amends by making him found an hospital for decayed farmers Footnote. sir andrew freeport after giving money to some importunate beggars says i ought to give to an hospital of invalids to recover as many useful subjects as i can but i shall bestow none of my bounties upon an almshouse of idle people and for the same reason i should not think it a reproach to me if i had withheld my charity from those common beggars the spectator number two three two this paper is not by addison in number five four nine which is by addison sir andrew is made to found an almshouse for a dozen superannuated husbandmen i have before contrasted the opinions of johnson and fielding as to almsgiving a more curious contrast is afforded by the following passage in tom jones book one chapter three i have told my reader that mr allworthy inherited a large fortune that he had a good heart and no family hence doubtless it will be concluded by many that he lived like an honest man owed no one a shilling took nothing but what was his own kept a good house entertained his neighbours with a hearty welcome at his table and was charitable to the poor that is to those who had rather beg than work 
by giving them the offals from it, that he died immensely rich and built an hospital. End of footnote. He called for the volume of the spectator in which that account is contained and read it aloud to us. He read so well that everything acquired additional weight and grace from his utterance. Footnote. Boswell says, Hebrides, August the 26th, 1773, his recitation was grand and affecting, and, as Sir Joshua Reynolds has observed to me, had no more tone than it should have. Mrs. Piozzi, Anecdotes, writes, his manner of repeating deserves to be described, though at the same time it defeats all power of description. But whoever once heard him repeat an ode of Horace would be long before they could endure to hear it repeated by another. End of footnote. The conversation having turned on modern imitations of ancient ballads, and someone having praised their simplicity, he treated them with that ridicule which he always displayed when that subject was mentioned. Footnote. Some of the old legendary stories put in verse by modern writers provoked him to caricature them thus one day at Streatham. The tender infant, meek and mild, fell down upon the stone. The nurse took up the squealing child, but still the child squealed on. A famous ballad also, beginning Rio Verde, Rio Verde, when I commended the translation of it, he said he could do it better himself, as thus. Glassy water, glassy water, down whose current clear and strong chiefs, confused in mutual slaughter, moor and Christian roll along. But, sir, said I, this is not ridiculous at all. I know, replied he. Why should I always write ridiculously? Piozzi's Anecdotes Neither Boswell nor Mrs. Piozzi mentions Percy by name as the subject of Johnson's ridicule. End of footnote. He disapproved of introducing scripture phrases into secular discourse. This seemed to me a question of some difficulty. A scripture expression may be used, like a highly classical phrase, to produce an instantaneous strong impression, and it may be done without being at all improper. Yet I own there is danger that applying the language of our sacred book to ordinary subjects may tend to lessen our reverence for it. If, therefore, it be introduced at all, it should be with very great caution. On Thursday, April the 8th, I sat a good part of the evening with him, but he was very silent. He said, Burnet's history of his own times is very entertaining. The style, indeed, is mere chit-chat. Footnote. Rogers, table talk, said that Fox considered Burnet's style to be perfect. End of footnote. I do not believe that Burnet intentionally lied, but he was so much prejudiced that he took no pains to find out the truth. He was like a man who resolves to regulate his time by a certain watch. 
but will not inquire whether the watch is right or not. Footnote. Johnson works, volume 7, page 96, quotes Dalrymple's observation, who says that whenever Burnet's narrations are examined, he appears to be mistaken. Lord Bolingbroke wrote of party pamphlets and histories, Read them with suspicion, for they deserve to be suspected. Pay no regard to the epithets given, nor to the judgments passed. Neglect all declamation. Weigh the reasoning, and advert to fact. With such precautions, even Burnet's history may be of some use. Horace Walpole, noticing an attack on Burnet, says letters. It shows his enemies are not angry at his telling falsehoods, but the truth. I will tell you what was said of his history by one whose testimony you yourself will not dispute. That confessor said, Damn him, he has told a great deal of truth, but what the devil did he learn it? This was St. Atterbury's testimony. End footnote. Though he was not disposed to talk, he was unwilling that I should leave him, and when I looked at my watch and told him it was twelve o'clock, he cried, What's that to you and me? and ordered Frank to tell Mrs. Williams that we were coming to drink tea with her, which we did. It was settled that we should go to church together next day. On the ninth of April, being Good Friday, I breakfasted with him on tea and cross buns. Dr. Levitt, as Frank called him, making the tea. Footnote. The cross buns were for Boswell and Levitt. Johnson recorded Prayers and Meditations, page 121. On this whole day I took nothing of nourishment but one cup of tea without milk. But the fast was very inconvenient. Towards night I grew fretful and impatient, unable to fix my mind or govern my thoughts. End of footnote. He carried me with him to the church of St. Clement Danes, where he had his seat, and his behaviour was, as I had imaged to myself, solemnly devout. Footnote. It is curious to compare with this Johnson's own record. I found the service not burdensome nor tedious, though I could not hear the lessons. I hope in time to take pleasure in public works. Present Meditations, page 121. End footnote. I never shall forget the tremulous earnestness with which he pronounced the awful petition in the litany, in the hour of death and at the day of judgment, good Lord deliver us. We went to church both in the morning and evening. In the interval between the two services we did not dine, but he read in the Greek New Testament, and I turned over several of his books. In Archbishop Lord's diary I found the following passage which I read to Dr. Johnson. 1623, February the 1st, Sunday. I stood by the most illustrious Prince Charles at dinner. Footnote. Afterwards Charles I, Boswell, end of footnote. He was then very merry and talked occasionally of many things with his attendants. 
among other things he said that if he were necessitated to take any particular profession of life he could not be a lawyer adding his reasons i cannot saith he defend a bad nor yield in a good cause johnson sir this is false reasoning because every cause has a bad side and a lawyer is not overcome though the cause which he has endeavoured to support be determined against him i told him that goldsmith had said to me a few days before as i take my shoes from the shoemaker and my coat from the tailor so i take my religion from the priest i regretted this loose way of talking johnson sir he knows nothing he has made up his mind about nothing Footnote. see post april the ninth seventeen seventy eight where johnson said goldsmith had no settled notions upon any subject so he talked always at random End of footnote. to my great surprise he asked me to dine with him on easter day i never supposed that he had a dinner at his house for i had not then heard of any one of his friends having been entertained at his table he told me i generally have a meat pie on sunday it is baked at a public oven which is very properly allowed because one man can attend it and thus the advantage is obtained of not keeping the servants from church to dress dinners Footnote. the next day johnson recorded i have had some nights of that quiet and continual sleep which i had wanted till i had almost forgotten it pembroke college manuscripts and a footnote april the eleventh being easter sunday after having attended divine service at st paul's i repaired to dr johnson's i had gratified my curiosity much in dining with jean-jacques rousseau while he lived in the wilds of neuchatel i had as great a curiosity to dine with dr samuel johnson in the dusky recess of a court in fleet street i supposed we should scarcely have knives and forks and only some strange uncouth ill-dressed dish but i found everything in very good order we had no other company but mrs williams and a young woman whom i did not know as the dinner here was considered as a singular phenomenon and as i was frequently interrogated on the subject my readers may perhaps be desirous to know our bill of fare foot i remember in allusion to francis the negro was willing to suppose that our repast was black broth but the fact was that we had a very good soup a boiled leg of lamb and spinach a veal pie and a rice pudding footnote we have the following account of johnson's kitchen in 1778 mr thrale and pray sir who is clerk of your kitchen sir dr j why sir i am afraid there is none a general anarchy prevails in my kitchen as i am told by mr levitt who says it is not now what it used to be mr t but how do you get your dinners dressed dr j 
Why, Desmoulins has the chief management, for we have no jack. Mr. T. No jack? Why, how do they manage without? Dr. J. Small joints, I believe, they manage with a string, and larger ones done at the tavern. I have some thoughts, with a profound gravity, of buying a jack, because I think a jack is some credit to a house. Mr. T. Well, but you'll have a spit, too. Dr. J. Oh, no, sir, no. That would be superfluous, for we shall never use it. If a jack is seen, a spit will be presumed. Madame D'Arblay's Diary, end footnote. Of Dr. John Campbell, the author, he said, He is a very inquisitive and a very able man, and a man of good religious principles, though I am afraid he has been deficient in practice. Campbell is radically right, and we may hope that in time there will be good practice. He owned that he thought Hawksworth was one of his imitators, but he did not think Goldsmith was. Goldsmith, he said, had great merit. Boswell. But, sir, he is much indebted to you for his getting so high in the public estimation. Johnson. My, sir, he has perhaps got sooner to it by his intimacy with me. Goldsmith, though his vanity often excited him to occasional competition, had a very high regard for Johnson, which he at this time expressed in the strongest manner in the dedication of his comedy entitled She Stoops to Conquer. Footnote. By inscribing this slight performance to you, I do not mean so much to compliment you as myself. It may do me some honour to inform the public that I have lived many years in intimacy with you. It may serve the interests of mankind also to inform them that the greatest wit may be found in a character without impairing the most unaffected piety. Boswell. End of footnote. Johnson observed that there were very few books printed in Scotland before the Union. He had seen a complete collection of them in the possession of the Honourable Archibald Campbell, a non-during bishop. Footnote. See an account of this learned and respectable gentleman, and of his curious work in the Middle State. Journal of a Tour to the Hebrides, 3rd edition, page 371, October the 25th, Boswell, into footnote. I wish this collection had been kept entire. Many of them are in the library of the Faculty of Advocates at Edinburgh. I told Dr. Johnson that I had some intention to write the life of the learned and worthy Thomas Rudderman. He said, I should take pleasure in helping you to do honour to him. But his farewell letter to the Faculty of Advocates when he resigned the office of their librarian should have been in Latin. I put a question to him upon a fact in common life which he could not answer, nor have I found anyone else who could. What is the reason that women servants though obliged to be at the expense of purchasing their own clothes, 
have much lower wages than men's servants to whom a great proportion of that article is furnished and when in fact our female house servants work much harder than the male footnote when the efficiency in square brackets of men and women is equal but the pay unequal the only explanation that can be given is custom j s mill's political economy and a footnote he told me that he had twelve or fourteen times attempted to keep a journal of his life but never could persevere footnote the day before he told boswell this he had recorded my general resolution to which i humbly implore the help of god is to methodize my life to resist sloth i hope from this time to keep a journal present meditations page one two four four times more he recorded the same resolution to keep a journal and a footnote he advised me to do it the great thing to be recorded said he is the state of your own mind footnote see post march the thirtieth seventeen seventy eight where johnson says a man loves to review his own mind that is the use of a diary or journal End of footnote. and you should write down everything that you remember for you cannot judge at first what is good or bad and write immediately while the impression is fresh for it will not be the same a week afterwards footnote. he who has not made the experiment or who is not accustomed to require rigorous accuracy from himself will scarcely believe how much a few hours take from certainty of knowledge and distinctness of imagery to this dilatory notation must be imputed the false relations of travellers where there is no imaginable motive to deceive they trusted to memory what cannot be trusted safely but to the eye and told by guess what a few hours before they had known with certainty johnson's works volume nine page one four four into footnote i again solicited him to communicate to me the particulars of his early life he said you shall have them all for tuppence i hope you shall know a great deal more of me before you write my life he mentioned to me this day many circumstances which i wrote down when i went home and have interwoven in the former part of this narrative. End of section thirty.